1: Welcome to the Vet Gurus. Brendan here, a bit of a croaky voice. Episode 303, Thursday, July the 13th, 2023. Mark, are
0: you there? I am, Brendan. I am here and I'm a happy man.
1: You are a happy man and let's hope you stay happy with what we're chatting about off-air, which we (laughs) may or may not talk about. We will Um, in the future
0: definitely talk about it.
1: With um, making sure you keep yourself safe, Mark, um, is what we're talking about. And apart from that, I've got nothing, Mark. Um, I've got nothing. It's been a bit um, chilly down here in Melbourne, although this week it's a tad milder, Mark. Um, the kids locally are all back to school, Mark. Um, there was 2 weeks school holidays, or two to three weeks for some schools, so everybody's back to Work. Everybody's back to school, and the clinics um, picked up again a little bit. Um, and often, you know, as as a general rule, I think we've spoken about it before. Mark often during um, school holidays, things can slacken off a little bit, and certainly towards the end of the school holidays, when parents are rushing around getting the kids ready, I was going to say, slapping them around, getting them ready and dressed. To get back to school, mark there the last thing I want to do is go down to the vet we find sometimes, although there are exceptions, aren't there so but yes, back back into the back into the grind mark, back into the um knocking over all the cases, um some interesting cases, um, and you're about to say which ones are interesting um we may not go there at the moment, I've got a couple that might keep up for. Future podcast. Future podcast. Mark, what about yourself?
0: Well, it's been—it's the dry just been season. Lazing
1: around, taking photos. Been, that's
0: exactly sitting right. Sitting in
1: the sun, having a few beers. Um, <laughs> yeah, Living the uh,
0: living. I tough wish life. I could deny it, but it's all true. <laughs> it's all true. I have been. Um, I've been really enjoying taking. Uh, I've been working on a few aspects of my bird photography. As many regular listeners will know, I love taking a snap of birds. And I feel like Brendan. I've become very proficient at the bird on a stick photograph. And so I'm trying to up my game with a little bit of additional behavior or maybe some additional artistic endeavor, you know, um, rim lighting silhouettes or... Uh, particular symmetries or birds in flight. Some of these are uh, more difficult parts of the bird photography genre. I've been really working on those, and I've I've had a few uh, fails, massive fails lately, which have been has been a little bit depressing. But this week, I've had a couple of little wins, and I'm I'm pleased to be um, registering a couple of W's in the column. Um, so, yeah, it's been good. It's been good fun. Excellent. What's your thoughts, and I
1: think I know what it is, um, about editing of um, photos, Mark? And I know a lot of people spend a lot of time tweaking all their photos, whether it's birds or wildlife or even non-animal photos, Mark, um, landscapes, et cetera, macro, you know, flowers, whatever. Yeah. What's your opinion on on jumping into... Your favourite photo editor and tweaking things, um, and how what, much should you
0: tweak them, Mark? I. It's a very good question and one that I've been thinking about a little bit this week. I had a photograph of a palm cockatoo from a few weeks ago, which I sort of went a little bit um, more radically than I usually do with bird photography. I try to be true to the image i see and make only very slight post-production tweaks that you know don't change the circumstance of the photo i try brendan as you well know to get it right in the camera Um, but but i do just often uh, touch up the contrast or something in one of those photo editing apps but i did go i did get a bit excited with this palm cockatoo and i went a bit berserkers and i don't think there's anything wrong with that as long as you're not trying to say that it's something that it's not to me that's the key thing if you have a butterfly on a crocodile snout that you have put there with photoshop then that's dishonest if you pretend that you've done it any other way um and i'm against that but if you're lucky enough to catch a butterfly or a dragonfly on a crocodile's snout and you sh- and you just tweak that a little bit um, to highlight the fact then um, I'm all for that it's honesty and ethics in all circumstance Brendan <laughs> oh
1: Mark if life was like that generally <laughs> I think well, the bottom line is I just get annoyed with people who, who become this, these pious sort of, you know, you can't tweak this, you can't do that, you can't, and what, 99.99% of people take photos just for their own use, they're the only ones who are going to see it anyway, really, and a couple of their friends, and um, do what you want with it. (laughs) Yes, you're exactly right. Do what you want with it, and, um, you know, it's like if I'm if i ever go out and play around with taking some you know candid street photography type photos mark sometimes i try and make them pretty arty or do them all black and white or whatever yeah. and i think it's just fun to to sort of play with that and sometimes it's getting that that feel mark that that scene um and that that sort of um i don't know that genas quoi with those photos mark so um even though it's nothing like what you saw through the lens so yeah um, uh, have fun you know have and uh, don't be too don't be too um don't be too critical of other people's what i what i tend to say and i i never really i I lurk on a few of these photo forums mark and i never reply to any of the comments there and you see people it's like any sort of Passionate sort of hobby, isn't it, Mark? People get get fired up, don't they? And all these arguments and slanging matches um, about, oh, you you know, you use Photoshop to change that colour, and it's not the true colour for that particular bird or whatever.
0: Get a life, Mark. Get a, <laughs> get a life, life is what I say. The, I don't, yeah. Like I said, the only the only there is a rather famous Australian episode where someone presented a bird. They, their name shall go just um well if this is all allegedly someone presented a bird that um that had been photographically photo photoshopified yeah. um and then presented it as possibly a new species um but um but if you're just doing it like you said for your own enjoyment go hard and enjoy i say yes
1: <laughs> well that's photo um, ethics one hundred and one, Mark. We've covered. I think we should get into some veterinary news, Mark, or some wildlife news, or some animal news, Mark. And animal I'll take the
0: first
1: news. one. And it's a bit of an odd one, Mark. The title is "Coral-Eating Fish Poo May Act as Probiotics for Reefs." What the hell are we talking about here? So it's about coral virus. Collivorous? Calivorous, isn't it, Mark? Fish are generally regarded as harmful because they're fish that bite the corals, Mark. So until recently, these fish were thought to weaken the reef structures as compared to fish that consume the algae, uh, yeah. the grazers. Um, but they, there's a cute little study they did here, Mark, and they found that the faeces of these chrylovore fish contain many of the bacterial taxes that are associated with healthy corals under normal conditions, which potentially results in natural dispersal, dispersal of coral probiotics. So they're thinking that they're actually, even though they're chomping on the coral mark, what they poo out helps the coral. And the little study they did is they they studied the effects of faeces for both types of the fish mark on live coral. They placed pieces of coral in jars with sterile seawater and applied faeces from chrylovore and grazer fish to different jars. Some samples were sterilised to determine whether the physical characteristics of the faeces alone caused the lesions, according to the article. After the experiment, each piece piece of coral was examined and categorised as apparently healthy, containing lesions, or dead. And the ones that had the Corillivore species, Mark, chomping on that and the poo from
0: those um,
1: were doing okay.
0: So quite an interesting thing, Mark. And in an evolutionary sense, Brendan, it sort of makes sense that if you're an animal that needs to eat coral... That something about the process that you do that is going to make the coral last longer and be better because yes, otherwise, like a par- parasite doesn't want to kill its host. That's so, right. it doesn't want to kill the coral, Mark. And I know yeah. another thing about this that um, is really interesting. You know those tropical parrotfish are yes. the, the most common fish that um, chew up these, uh, um, chew up the coral, and. If you know those tropical keys where there's like a wonderful sandy beach? Yes, yes. All the sand that's on those coral beaches is um parrotfish poo with the the organic part washed away. So when you see those people lolling around on a tropical beach, just think they're resting on a giant pile of parrotfish poo. Yes.
1: It's a load of poo mark. Uh so I think in the future, do you think we'll have people that are growing up these fish faeces, Mark?
0: Ah, that's interesting. Just, well, to
1: then use them in management to help the coral reefs, Mark? Um, you know, we, we, we often talk about doing poo milkshakes, don't we, for some of
0: these gut fermenters, et cetera, I have, and, and I our native animals. Listeners are long-term listeners that are listening to this and not new to the podcast.
1: Are we going to talk about
0: fish poo milkshakes? To coral, yeah. coral. Poo. I think we will. I think we uh, <laughs> there will be lots of things brought to bear um, to improve the lot of coral as the ocean temperature rises and and causes. Yep. Coralivores
1: and grazers both have important ecological roles. Mark was their summary.
0: My story is to do with the ocean in a way as well, Brendan. It's it's a story about. a a photograph that's um, sort of taking the at least parts of the internet by storm it's a photograph or or a short bit of footage of a um a, a gull consuming a squirrel entirely just swallowing the whole thing down in one piece and although it's gruesome experts consulted by the this particular journalist suggested that taking on a prey that size is a mark of the bird's bravery and skill. My personal opinion, Brendan, is that those experts don't know what they're talking about because I think many of the goals, and particularly our silver gulls here in Australia, are relatively small compared to some of the larger goals overseas. And they regularly, they have a structure in their throat, um, the uh, hypobranchial apparatus, the um, the bony structure which supports the, the glottis, which allows them to dilate their throat much like a snake. And the elastic esophagus allows them to swallow disproportionately large things uh, for an, animals that, that are their size. So I think that it's not that unusual for a, a gull to take on a relatively large prey item and make relatively um, easy work of it.
1: Yes, it is a pretty graphic video there, Mark. We'll have a bit of a link to that article. Um, yeah, well, off have seen gulls. eat some pretty bloody big... Buckets of chips, Mark, when I've been at the beach. I don't know about
0: you. And they, um, they scoff them down pretty quick. So I think you're right there, Mark. Um, mm. and... I, I, I am becoming increasingly critical of experts, Brendan. <laughs> How do you think the uh, the squirrel died, Mark? Was it
1: eaten alive?
0: I think it was eaten alive. I think it caught was Caught and maybe it was a bit run down and easier to catch. Yeah. So I think on the video, it's, um I was just playing the video then as you're talking.
1: um it, It's, uh, I'm not quite sure whether it's twitching or not as no. I'm swallowing it there. So, yes. Well, that's a bit of a clickbait story though, isn't yes. it, Mark? Um, Yes. Nothing wrong uh, with a bit of clickbait. Um, and you love a viral sto- story, don't you? You love a viral story. Um, okay. Let's get off some, um, trash articles. Mark, uh, let's get on to our main topic, which is one, well, we can do a series on these ones. And in fact, episode 25, Mark, episode 25, guess how long ago that was? 5th of April, 2018. (laughs)
0: Pre-COVID.
1: Episode 25, we covered bird eggs candling and incubation you were chatting a bit about, Mark. Um, but this week we're going to talk about egg incubation in reptiles, Mark. So do you want to kick it off with a with an intro?
0: I did indeed. It was a, it's a topic that's been playing on my mind a little bit recently because of some volunteer work I'm doing and um and yeah i've i've been doing a little bit of reading and and some of the general principles i thought might be something that we could talk about and then some of the potential problems and and i know that i have been approached several times by keepers particularly keepers who have invested a lot in a particular breeding line to try and figure out why particular clutches of eggs have not progressed normally through the incubation process So I think it's good to just be aware of the potential problems and and that can give you at least a starting point to begin a workup on these cases.
1: It's a whole subject in itself, isn't it? The um, incubation, selection of incubating material. We might touch on a little bit of that. Incubation temperatures, obviously. Incubators. And they're constructed, and there's commercial ones available these days. And and then we we've got a huge range of different species of reptiles to deal with, Mark. So um, we we could be here all day, or night, depending on um, what time of the day or night you're listening to it. So we'll we'll jump into a, a few specific a- aspects, I think, Mark. And I think you wanted to touch on the difference between birds and reptiles with with
0: uh, incubation. I do, I think this is, uh, there's some aspects of um, uh, incubation that are consistent across species, but there's some important differences between birds and reptiles and someone who might be good at incubating bird eggs might come a cropper if they had to do with reptile eggs because of these differences. And so I thought we'd quickly touch on those to start with. Probably the most important one is the completely different nature of the shell the leathery shell of uh, most reptile eggs is uh, much more porous um, and permits a vastly greater amount of transfer of water over its surface now that's certainly the case with um bird eggs you they're porous as well Um, but um the the they're certainly not as porous as reptile eggs and and as a consequence, um, there's an important role in maintaining the immediate the humidity of the immediate environment around the egg, um, much much more um, tightly, maybe than um, we would expect with bird eggs. That uh, where the bird eggs are going to look after themselves to a much greater degree, reptile eggs need that environment to be managed with a relatively high appropriate humidity, a at, uh, at higher humidity appropriate to the species and that's because of the porosity and uh nature of the eggshell in addition uh in most people who have uh, had something to do with incubating bird eggs would know that they're turned that they're mechanically rolled but this is not the case with with reptile eggs uh and it's it's an area i find very fascinating the Membranous structure, the chalaza, that suspend the embryo of birds, is not present in reptiles, and so um, uh, the reptile uh, embryo is much more likely to move within the the, uh, the structure of the egg, and and it is theorised that um, that that movement can lead to damage. And while many of the eggs that have been Turned, reptile eggs that have been turned will hatch. There's pretty clear evidence, Brendan, that they won't hatch at the same high frequency as eggs whose orientation has been maintained. And the ones that do hatch are often vastly less healthy than their counterparts who have remained in eggs that have not been turned and rolled around. So leave them alone. Don't Mark them if you're going to move them. Mark them with a soft pencil and uh, keep this way them uh, oriented correctly. Yeah, exactly. Yes,
1: and you know probably one. Uh, I generally lump these into two sort of groups of people that we might be seeing clients that seeing you know really experienced herpers who um, are deliberately going into you know breeding um, for yep. their reptile species, and then the accidental one that. You know, you get somebody phoning up or panicking and bringing their reptile and or for saying, should I bring these eggs in? My, my, my snake, my lizard, my crocodile has, has, has popped out a whole lot of eggs. Help, what do I do? So what do we say to those people, Mark?
0: Well, we say how lucky they are because <laughs> many of those... Uh, Reptiles that are kept in a circumstance where maybe it's unexpected that they're going to lay eggs, they've probably dodged a big bullet because they, they, they. I'd be really worried that uh, they might have some form of um, dystocia potentially, and so getting the eggs out first of all has been a lucky thing. The second thing is that that you want to make an assessment for those poor owners about the likely fertility. So yes, an animal that. Is... That's that's why uh,
1: that was in
0: it mate yes yes in that um and if the animal <laughs> is on its own then um by and large you can forget those eggs they're all going to be um infertile but not always but um but the vast majority of them are going to be infertile but if there's a pair in there it is certainly worth treating those eggs as if they could be fertile. And even in the unusual circumstance, we've had clients who've had turtle eggs in the water for a few hours and those eggs set in appropriate um, substrate and kept warm have hatched. So I think it's uh, definitely if there's a chance the eggs could be fertile because there's been a mating or a coupling at some stage. uh, Yeah.
1: Yes. So, my next question, Mark, is to myself. Questions to myself and you is, what do you say to that client about the potential viability of those eggs? What's our sort of key takeaways and and hints about? Yeah, no, those all those eggs look like they're going to be infertile, or they're they're going bad, um, or it there potentially is an embryo in there.
0: Well. Don't know where you're headed. Tell me. Tell
1: how me. do we how, how do we determine oh, I see if we
0: have a valid egg or an infertile egg? Well, it's good to candle them. It's you can set a light up hard against them, a bright light. Even sometimes there's there are commercially available egg candling torches which support the egg and place the light very close. Um, and the development of blood vessels. On the membranes inside the egg will give you a good clue that that's a viable egg.
1: Yep. Not unsurprising, Mark. I purchased myself a LED little torch um, or a couple of them from Amazon or somewhere like that that works fantastic um, as far as can then. So you just want something that has a really bright focal light. That has a, has a small
0: sort of diameter um, where the lights come in from. Mark. Brendan, um, have you ever used? Um, I found for many eggs, the otoscope without a cone in it was a useful piece of kit. Yes. yes. the ring would support the egg and um, the, the egg would rest on the very bright light that uh, illuminates the, the speculum when it's used in its normal fashion. And I just retire to our old dark room, Mark. Um, so Contrast, going, yes, yep.
1: in, into a darkened um, room. And uh, they think, "Oh, Brendan's off to meditate again." And I come out and say, "It's, it's, it's, it's a boy. It's a girl." <laughs> <laughs> yes. So we have that. So we've, and well, it's not, it's not that simple, is it? I mean, some of them are quite easy to candle, and you know straight away that. You have a have a have a um an embryo in there that's look, looking like it's still alive, Mark. And and if in doubt, obviously we we say to the client, look, try and incubate them, and we'll see what happens. Um, and yeah. speaking of incubation, Mark, there's a a thousand one different techniques and different substrates recommended for incubating reptile eggs. So do you want to? touch on a couple of your your key points with um, both substrates and, and the methods of incubating the reptile eggs? Well, I think
0: a, your division of clients into newbies who are a bit surprised at the presence of, um, of eggs and more experienced clients who are deliberately trying to get Breed, large numbers yeah. of eggs, I think that's a useful distinction because... Uh, obviously, if you're committing a huge amount of resources and knowledge to trying to do it, you're going to invest more in that. And so there are a number of commercially available incubators designed specifically for reptiles. And, and they're very good at maintaining the specific temperatures required for, you know, Different species and they're adjustable so um, you can change it a little bit if you have different species and different temperatures and, and that's great but if you've got uh, you know just a family who have um, a couple of bearded dragons and they don't have those resources very very simple systems. Um, the old uh, incandescent globe in a wooden box, and sitting on sitting the eggs on top of that in a container. Um, that will maintain a very stable temperature, and a little bit of checking with your infrared thermal uh, thermometer. thermometer will um, will allow you to just make adjustment to get the temperature right, and that can be very effective. Uh, and, and relatively inexpensive for those clients who have an accidental yes. obvious position and
1: and the actual container to put them in can be very simple as well can't it mark it can be like a tupperware a, a little
0: plastic um, container um, most they people often, mm, they sp- often work best because yes. they're easily sterilized um, yes. they're um, clean they can you know can be discarded afterwards, so there. It's easy to manage those plastic containers. And, yes, yeah. and, and classically, uh, as far as what you put
1: the as a substrate inside yeah. that little container, typically, the, the, the classic one is vermiculite. Uh,
0: That's the one I'd I'd always um, start with if if there are a number of um, as far as the incubation medium. Yep, yeah, a number yep. of clients these days are, uh, there's the there's people who have substrate-free incubation for many of the um, uh, snake morphs. But but I find that uh, vermiculite works well because it's, it, it's relatively clean, it's easy to manage, it maintains humidity well and air circulation as well.
1: Yes, it sucks and, up
0: a bit of that water if
1: you yeah, put a bit of you know, water and get, get the humidity up, but it has a little bit of an almost like an antifungal type type effect mark as well, compared with some of the other substrates. Because one of the things that you need to look out for with those eggs when they are con- you know, checking on them is the, the possibility that they go off and then you end up with all of them with, you know, a fungal or a mould over
0: over the eggs, Mark and and if they're that's one of the reasons that it's good to separate the eggs um because uh if they're sort of all kept in a clutch in a bunch uh, those those uh infertile eggs or eggs that might die along the way that do develop fungal growth um that can contaminate adjacent eggs that weren't going to to um crash and burn And, and then you've got uh the whole clutch gone. And so, the other
1: thing that sometimes happens, Mark, is sometimes these eggs are stuck together. Um, yes. If, if the eggs have recently been laid, then you could gently, very, very gently try and um, pull them apart. But otherwise, you leave them, Mark, um, is what my recommendation would be. And they can end up hatching out, um, even though they're touching. Um, but there is a the concern that they, they'll either go bad or, or that... Um, or that you'll get some funky thing happening with them, but they they can hatch out. Mark those ones that are touching together, and we turn. Look, I think it.
0: most of the python eggs will stick together, and and form a like a, a huge ball if they're left with their mother for more than twelve or twenty four hours, and so that's why many python breeders are keen to monitor closely their their uh, um, their gravid females to remove the eggs before they uh, sort of get glued together but I'm like you uh, if they do get to that point where they're stuck together the main worry is that one of them dies the actual sticking is not the problem it's that one develops a problem yep. and then passes it on to the other because of their intimate contact yes
1: yes and then Mark if all goes to plant and we have fertile eggs there they start to they start to hatch, Mark. Um, any any thoughts on that process and what the client needs to think about?
0: Well, the first thought I have about the duration of incubation and 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 hatching is that, um, geez, Brendan, it's been a headache of mine how variable it is.
1: Yeah. Uh, if,
0: if you're incubating bird eggs, you can be fairly confident about the time frame when you're going to see the little uh, birds hatch out, but with reptiles, there does seem to be a significant increase in the variability um, of that uh, uh, duration of incubation. And so it sometimes can be anything, you know, from like uh, one of the species I was looking at uh, recently has been listed at anything from 65 to 95 days. So don't put a mark in your calendar stay up all night and then harass the vet the next day because they haven't hatched because unless there's a sign of a, a problem, might yep. just be a few more days and they'll pop out. Yeah, and there are charts that you can, well, you can look on Do the, your research. Google, Mark. Um, Do your every, research.
1: And they'll have a have a bit of a, a rough value of, of the incubation period for what your particular reptile that you're trying to incubate the eggs from, Mark. But yeah, we've got lots of variables there. You know, this, the enclosure that it's in, obviously the temperature it's kept at, the humidity it's kept at, and even if you kept them all, you separated every single egg into separate containers, you're still going to get variability with when they're going to hatch out. Uh, so. Exactly, guarding that. Um, anything? Any tips on you know when they're hatching out? Does they what? What, what does the
0: client do, Mark? Nothing. The best thing to do is leave them (laughs) alone. The reptiles have an egg tooth on their little snout, a a tiny miniature triceratops horn, um, and um, they slit the egg with that uh, and stick their head out and start breathing. But they might stay that way because the positioning moving around within the egg and slitting the egg is such hard work and so stressful. They might lay there for 24 or 36 hours just with their snout and head out before they emerge completely. So the best thing to do is leave them alone. They still have considerable reserves of nutrition in their yolk sac, which they're internalizing. And and yeah, many, many more problems are caused by trying to help them out. Than they are by just leaving them alone. Sounds exactly like you
1: first thing in the morning, Mark. Leave you <laughs> leave alone. <him> alone. <laughs> don't
0: touch. Don't go in
1: there. And don't wake the bear. Don't poke the bear. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I agree entirely with that, Mark. Um, just just leave them alone. And and uh, I think the key thing is, you know, ha- hands off with with everybody. Oh, not everybody. People are always <laughs> keen on on. Put in their you know, finger in the pie, aren't they? They, they, they want, to, they can't help themselves trying to push <laughs> things along, or think, oh, I need to turn the eggs, or I need to add this or that. Leave things alone, let nature do its job. Keep a watch on it, if. It looks like you're having, and it's sometimes very obvious, isn't it, Mark? When you have a a whole a whole batch or, or one or more eggs going bad, Mark, uh, it's pretty damn obvious. So it might cave in compared with its little little neighbours, for instance, or you get that obvious fungal or or colour change of the shell. And I I especially if you're keen on um, it important to breed in cycle or whatever. You would be pulling those particular eggs out those individual eggs out, but otherwise well, you leave them alone um let leave them do alone. the thing mate.
0: some of the advanced herpeticulturists that I've had the pleasure of working with brendan i I've known them to um to like snip the egg to have a look inside and then see all that snip up with a little bit of tissue cement yeah to and I'm, I just like you said, um I can't think of many reasons where there's many times where there's going to be good consequences of that sort of intervention yep yep leave
1: it alone um it's always tempting to to um to put the human touch on it which ends up being the touch of death mark leave it alone (laughs) leave it alone now one final thing which was sort of off the topic a little bit um that's a common question i get i don't know about you mark um When do I feed the youngster?
0: Oh, it's a good question. And the answer to it is not straight away. (laughs) The the answer is, depending on the species, it might be, it's definitely going to be three or four days, um, particularly um, quickly uh, if it's those high-energy insectivorous sorts of animals. But for other species, it might be as long as two weeks before um, you need to offer food, and it might be, four or six weeks before some pythons take their first meal and you should not panic. As long as they're otherwise healthy and their environment is good, don't start trying to force feed them too quickly. Yes,
1: there ain't no hurry, Mark. (laughs) (laughs) That's what I think. Yes, it's it's a complete field in itself though, isn't it? Even though we've just simplified everything completely and it is... It is fascinating chatting to these these um, experienced breeders, mark, and um, learning the, the tips and the tricks that they use in order to have have viable clutches
0: for their particular species. Now one tip I do have to finish up on Brendan is uh, particularly with those um, high effort high quality breeders is um is to cultivate the habit of doing an egg post-mortem if they are no longer viable, If particularly if an egg dies along the incubation uh, pathway. It's worth getting that egg in quickly, not, that, you know, it's a bit of a waste of time if it's been three or four days because yeah. there will be secondary overgrowth of bacteria and fungi and the original inciting problem will not be obvious. But there are situations where bacteria from the reproductive tract can enter the developing egg and um, and be a, a problem for hatching. Um, so um, doing a post mortem on an egg as soon as it's um, ascertained that it's not viable, and considering culture and sensitivity testing um, can be a very valuable exercise, and it it might be one of the you know what I'm like talking about charging I want to charge the clients for everything uh, but snipping the egg open and having a quick look inside is one of the things that um that isn't going to take a lot of time um and can provide a lot of information confirmation of the candled interpretation for example um and um and yeah there may be some very useful information to be had by culturing the material within the egg Yep, great
1: point, Mark. As always, very wise words, Mark. (laughs) (laughs) And I think with that, we will head out of here. And if you have any comments, vetgurus at gmail.com and visit our little website, vetgurus.com. Look at the previous episode. You can jump into that old one about egg incubation and canling in birds, if you like. There's a little search function there. And uh, otherwise, drop us a line. Say hello. Talk to you next week.
0: Thanks for listening to the Vet Podcast by the Vet Gurus.